sitting in front of the screen. You can design through prototyping and hands-on making, and that creates a different kind of design in the end. Hi, and welcome to Ted a Ted, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and today we have Rice Design Alliance Executive Director Maria Nikonorth speaking with Maria Liso Gorskaya, a founding director of Assemble. In Maria's work with UK-based design collective Assemble, she moves between the skills of hands-on material prototyping, product design, urban planning, and architecture, among other things. She has worked on research and policy development of affordable workspaces in London, leading to the establishment of a publicly accessible workshop and fabrication venue. Maria has also been developing alternative approaches to housing in the UK and abroad, focusing on affordable, self-determinant, and collective living, and has been awarded the Winston Churchill Fellowship to research collective building projects in the US and China. We are excited to hear Maria's thoughts on working in a collective and producing the multidisciplinary work of Assemble, including the ongoing educational project at the Material Institute in New Orleans. Let's dive in. here this morning with Maria Lysogorskaya, one of the founding directors of Assemble Studio in London. Hi, Maria. Hello, Maria. <laughs> How are you? Good. <laughs> Did you just come in from London? Yesterday. Great. Um, I, I got a really great tour um, by uh, Stephen Fox around the campus. Really interesting. Excited to see more of Houston. Had you been here before? No, it's my first time great. in Texas as well. Right. Because you've been based in New Orleans in the past month, haven't you? I've been there a lot, yeah, yep. but never ventured out here. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that maybe later. Uh, we're super excited to have you here and to have you for our lecture, for the fall lecture series. Um, but we wanted to talk a little bit more about you, uh, about Assemble, and just understand a little bit more about how the firm came together and the kinds of projects that you're doing now. And I was, of course, very interested in you telling us how it all started back in, in 2010. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about how you guys got together at the beginning and how the firm got started. So we began working together around the time of, yeah, 2009, before the Tinuolium. Most of us studied together. We studied architecture at Cambridge and some of us were friends, but some of us just knew each other from university. And then we met up, I think it was someone's birthday, we were in a pub and talking about doing something together. There was a lot of inspiration from projects like uh, Exist, um, Southern Collider, which I helped out on, or our friends, Practice Architecture, Frank's um, Cafe in Peckham, you know, these projects that were self-built. And even though they were temporary, there was a different kind of feeling about architecture. And I think we wanted to just build something hmm. as well. Um, having, you know, most of us were working in other architecture practices. Right. So drawing, you know, details and doing things in a traditional way and we wanted to just do something from start to finish like you do at school. So you were doing this outside of your nine to five jobs, yeah. right? And yeah. perhaps as a way to find more inspiration and do different things. In the beginning it was really uh, part time, like weekends we'd meet up or evenings. And then we were able to I guess take holidays for when we needed to for construction, but it was really uh, very informal. And really, just people came because they liked the idea of doing something together. Mm -hmm. There was no sense of forming a structure or organization. Right. And when you got together to do this in early, you pretty much did the project before you had really 
started a firm per se or anything like that, right? Is Definitely. that how it happened? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was just the people that came the most to meetings that ended up being part of it. You know, there were a lot of people involved. Um, we got a lot of help from uh, theatrical shanders and our friends who are artists who were going to be better at making certain things. Mm. And so how did that project end up working? I mean, I mean, it was based on like the transformation of this former gas station into a cinema, but it was temporary, right? Like it had a limited period of time. How did it work? Yes, we had a, an idea to do something and then we found this empty petrol station and we found out who the landowner was. We got in touch with him and he's a private landowner and was able to give us a short period of time to use the space. And then we had to get event notice type stuff and that has a limit, like a time limit and we got kind of event licenses you can get like 12 in a year and that was guided by that and then we got a like a very small grant from ideas tap which is like a thing for young people trying to do creative things Mm -hmm. and we also ran a bar and so made some of our money back in it and that i I understand that that led eventually to other projects that had this kind of quality of temporality that i'm interested in talking more to you about there was another uh, great one was this folly for a flyover right and that was like this project under a highway um underpass in hackney week and it was about eight or nine weeks or something it had a similar sense of like um, this terrible word of pop-up <laughs> <laughs> happening at, at a very short amount of time. Those first two projects were very temporal in nature. Did you feel like that was a successful model at the beginning? Can you tell us a little bit more about how that uh, specific one worked, like uh, the folly under the highway underpass? Yeah, I think it was really helpful for us as a group of people to do that kind of project. So we uh, were invited by the Barbican, which is a gallery in London, to somehow be part of their animation exhibition Mm. but they didn't have funding or they wanted us to do something outside of the museum Mm. and they connected us to Create uh, which is a arts funding company and they have an annual grant and so we applied for that Mm. and then to do that we had to set up a company and put together an idea and we did and we came across this site for the Folly through uh, Muff Architecture Again, it had to be like a temporary project, which was part of this festival of animation, but it was really great catalyst for ideas and Mm. building things, and that's how it worked. Yeah, Yeah. and a lot of the projects that you've worked on have this idea of impermanence, or at least some of them at the beginning had, um, where you're using both um, materials and spaces of no apparent value, perhaps, like either you're using... Uh, materials from demolition waste or or abandoned gas stations or uh, underused uh, highway underpasses to develop this sort of like ingenious takes on on temporary spaces right and that can be very effective but I'm sure that there's also sort of like a negative side to that impermanence and and to the effect that that has in those communities so were there any lessons learned in terms of taking advantage of those strategies for temporality but then in future projects, understanding that perhaps you wanted more permanence in some of the work that you were doing. I think the pros of those kind of temporary projects are it's like a testing ground and the ability to do something which is not too precious. The idea of pop-ups that came kind of afterwards, we didn't intend to make a pop-up, we just wanted to do something that we were able to do. Mm. But I think if pop-ups as an idea is used in urban development too many to be a longer term strategy for what right. comes after yeah. a lot of the time pop-ups are used as a quick fix uh, as a way of bringing in it's yeah. a shame because when i was at architecture school we had a project where you had to build a tent and you mm. had to live in it and those kind of things are really helpful to designers because you really experience so right. much no it definitely has some 
after effects that are perhaps not always the best but um but then you change gears in a different project when you worked on the Grand before street um housing and i'd love to hear a little bit more about that one that one's in, in liverpool which is about two hours away from london right what what i found interesting about that one too is that you took on this kind of like legacy of housing urban policy in the uk like going back to like the 80s in Liverpool and like sort of like the consequences of like the, the Thatcher regime and how they were trying to deal with this kind of idea of like managed decline in some neighborhoods. So as I understand it, some of the neighbors there had already started work with a community land trust, right? And you were approached later to come and help them. Is that how it was? We were initially actually invited to develop another street next door, one of the four streets that was remaining. It never happened to be it, but through that process we met the Community Land Trust uh-huh. through the group of residents um, and they organised themselves in various different ways for the last couple of decades and the most recent one is the Community Land Trust but before that they had another kind of organisation. Mm. Yeah, and they've been trying to s- kind of bring the area back to life. Right, yeah. And they wanted us to be involved. How many houses were there? I forget. Like it was a big group of houses, right? I mean initially with like this Victorian sort of like uh, townhouses... And you intervene in three or four of them? We did uh, ten in the first. Ten. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they would like to do more now, but it was ten and different uh, family homes right. and smaller yeah. units. And I, I've read some of the interviews with some of the residents there, and it seemed like one of the things that they appreciated the most was that you weren't just coming in as architects and saying, here, um, leave us our space, we're going to do our architectural thing, but you participated in the process with them of building this together and not just redoing the houses and putting new roofs where they were broken or adding new uh, floors where they were missing, but you kind of took like a very light approach, but also uh, very flexible in that you worked with what you had, but you involved them in it. How was the process of working with them? I think we felt really appreciative of them, like we saw them as an inspiration um, rather than maybe distancing ourselves mm. or, you know, we saw them as experts in where they live and wanted to find out more about what's needed, what's mm. been happening. Yeah, I feel like it's helped us guide the design. Right. You know, they didn't necessarily sit there and sketch the yeah, plans yeah, of yeah. the toilet, but yeah, yeah. it's kind of deeper than that. Right. But there were some descriptions that I read that I found interesting as well, because I, I haven't been, I haven't actually seen the projects where you created some interior gardens where there was basically a hole in the roof or things like that were being able to adapt yourself to the conditions that you had and I imagine there wasn't a great budget either to do things right yeah definitely yeah Yeah. in a way that's part of the reason maybe some things are happening like that because there was a tiny budget Mm. and they had to help incrementally so you can't go in with like a grand master plan you have to step by step develop it and we had to be intentional about how we use the funds right you are coming in doing an architectural design for the many of the projects, but you're doing as much of a physical design as you're doing a design of a process, right? And a design of, of even the internal ways that organizations are working. So I'm very interested in hearing about the New Orleans project and what you've been doing there uh, with the Material Institute. It's a great example where you have refurbished the space, but it's also the values of the organization also seem very in line with sharing knowledge as they're doing. So maybe tell us a bit more about that one. I think it's a good point that we're interested in the design of uh, organizations because it feels like a way to be more sustainable long term. Mm. So the Material Institute is interesting because basically we were invited by this philanthropist who's building an art school, which Mm. Material Institute is part of. uh, And when we arrived, it consisted of a music studio, 
and uh, Garden mm -hmm. and some other programs that haven't really fully developed. And we were originally involved in designing a new building for all those bins. That's been stopped for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, we proposed to set up a fashion department as mm -hmm. part of that school. Mm -hmm. And because when we were there, the organisation have been running lots of fashion shows and there's definitely a desire for fashion. Mm -hmm. And so we basically did a pilot as a way of setting it up. So we converted the space and invited different fashion designers to work with us. And yeah. it kind of naturally happened that we brought our values with us yeah, yeah. and our interest in making things and creating a space that's open and accessible to people. And so I think now is an interesting time because we've advertised for a director to run it. Mm -hmm. Us and Mona Museum mm -hmm. of uh, Old and New York because they are the ones who initiated the whole school. Right. Was yeah. it your first project in the US? No, we've done small things, like temporary things in yes. the US. So yeah, I yeah. guess our first like potentially permanent project. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, you've been represented in biennials and other uh, other projects like that, and that was something that I was interested on your take on as well, because you're you're working on this very hands-on project. You're known to be very hands-on, which is kind of like the great thing as well, and this culture of making. But at the same time, you're quite active in being represented in art biennials and architecture biennials, and you have projects often, and I'm sure you get requests to, to do that quite often. So I was interested in your take on that kind of platform and how that's changed and this kind of like proliferation of biennials everywhere and the kind of frankly abusive system that sometimes they can be because of the ways that uh, that you put a lot of investment, uh, intellectual, financial, of all sorts of things, right? And and we all, you know, understand the, the need for those platforms, but how has that evolved? And particularly, I guess, since you got the Turner Prize, is that something that you've been seeing has increased. How do you feel about that kind of participation in biennials? And I think what you say is true. We don't rush to be involved. And when we are invited, we try and see how it can be an opportunity for us. You yeah. Know, because, yeah, like you say, they haven't got much money. And the time it takes is always so much longer than you yeah. think. It's turned into this sort of like crowdsourced curating, right? <laughs> Where so many are just like taking proposals in. Yeah. And, it, and it's hard. But at the same time, we all want to see what's happening. And, right, it's sort of like, is taking the pulse on, I suppose, what what's happening out there. So definitely, yeah. and I think if if we have something already, or we want to use it as an opportunity to develop something, yeah. then that's when we do it. And yeah. through part of the Chicago Biennial. What are you showing in Chicago? We did a collaborative project with the students at Mathilde Institute mm -hmm. and this artist Deval Kennedy, and we developed some new products for that. And it was a really great platform for the students. Mm -hmm. I'll be there in a couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to seeing cool. it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I left London um, a few years ago and I haven't been back and I know that you guys were based around the Olympic area in Stratford and yeah. talk about change in the city and like how has the area changed? You've done so many projects in that area too, right? Like working with schools and you're still based there, right? We moved. Oh, you moved? Yeah, yeah because it's changed so much. It's changed <laughs> a lot, yes. We saw those changes happening in front of us and I'm sure the experience for you having done so many projects there too just changed radically right yeah it was really quick we were in this industrial warehouse yeah. kind of between Stratford and Bromley by Bow mm -hmm. and it was earmarked for development so we knew from the outset yeah it wasn't forever yeah, yeah. so now all of that area is like going to be residential mm -hmm. it's crazy yeah like a drastic change from yeah, industrial yeah. to residential yeah so we moved to Bermondsey mm -hmm. another site of development how long have you been in Bermondsey? It's been about uh, two and a half years now. Yeah. So it's a lovely old uh, residential neighbourhood, yeah. which is close to industrial, mm. which is also changing. And it's really well connected for us. Mm -hmm. On the tube, on the 
metro. Yeah. Uh, because where we were before was kind of much more disconnected. But yeah, I really like it. I think maybe one downside is that it because it's residential, we can't have our big parties like we used to. Uh-huh. That's a shame. Yeah. We have a couple of neighbours who don't like the noise. <laughs> and do you do you get do you work a lot with the city council when you're in those neighborhoods? And how how do you seek that sort of local? connection also with the public entities that are around you that could be a source of information and they're also the ones sort of dealing with a lot of like the temporality of the spaces that they want to um, give different uses to and uh, are they a good resource for you? Yeah I think we try and stay in touch and we participate in workshops or have meetings with people to see where everyone's at. This particular site is actually owned by a private developer, mm-hmm. Grosvenor, who are very old school uh, developer. They own most of central London. Uh-huh. And so this is their first kind of outer London project. Interesting. So they're the ones really uh, we've been speaking to about this site. Yeah. But we are now working like five minutes away from the studio mm-hmm. on a redevelopment of a market, which is um, working with the council okay. and the market business group. So that's been really interesting, getting the other side of it a little bit. I was also interested in asking you a little bit more about, well, the general sort of like philosophy of, of the firm that I think now people understand quite well this cooperative way of working that you had and like this this very clear shift that I, I think um, you and, and others have been marking in the past years away from this kind of like figure of the hero architect that does everything by himself. And I will say himself. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you've definitely established those ideas much better. And, and you're also very, as I said before, like you're, you pride yourself in making things and making things with your hands. And so I, I was interested in that sort of like more maker part of the studio and how you go about that. And um, I mean, there's some uh, well-known examples now, like the handmade tiles that you made for the yard house and others, but there's other projects that you've worked on as well so where does that kind of like maker culture come from i guess it comes from yeah our first project which was in rodium and i don't know where the desire to make things came from then i think it was just stuff around us Mm. and wanting to try to make something and since then i feel like we've just really valued that as a working method i think it just creates a better design atmosphere rather than just sitting in front of the screen Mm. you can design through prototyping and right. hands-on making mm. and that creates a different kind of design in the end mm-hmm. so I think you know we don't necessarily always make stuff and not everyone is as interested or good at it but right. um, it's kind of valued as the core yeah somehow and interesting materials and how architecture is made is quite important for us and do you feel that's strengthened enough in architectural education? I mean, we, we are at an architectural school. Our students are very hands-on as well, but not necessarily every architecture school takes that approach. And do you feel like there might be a shift towards giving more importance to that? What was your experience with that? Was that something that was valued in, in your architectural education in the past or, or not so much? Yeah, I think it depends on which studio you take. So I was with uh, Tom Emerson, Tom Emerson mm-hmm. is here, mm. um, and we were... I guess lucky because he was very interested in that. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you know, during kind of technical studies or when you had to draw details, I personally would have benefited from having a more physical connection mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. As soon as I started being involved in projects, um, I feel like I understood so much more. Right. So I think, yeah, I imagine there will be a shift, uh, especially in the West, maybe where we're so removed from construction. And mm. I don't know, maybe it's a kind of elite position as well to kind of crave that. Um, messiness and whatever right. but um, it's certainly something that people are talking about 
maybe you know otherwise everything would just be generic cuz you right. said <laughs> yeah 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 don't go around the yeah. I mean it's you you've already done a little bit of that in the material institute um but getting into I don't even want to call it architectural education but into training or workshopping with students who are getting into a profession and just want to get into it from a different perspective um a few weeks ago we had Christian Coreman here in town from Seuss in Rotterdam and they're a firm that also has worked a lot with temporality as you have and they've decided to start their own school because they just didn't think it was being done right it's interesting to see firms mm. shifting into that kind of like independent activist architect kind of training mm. do you ever talk about that we have talked about it yeah talked about doing a summer school uh, like a lot of us taught or are still teaching mm often we have done kind of hands-on projects or that's why universities wanted us right. to teach yeah yeah i don't know if we'll ever organize ourselves <laughs> to start a school but that could be really interesting so tell us a bit more about where you are now i mean you started together as a group in 2009 2010 um there's a certain growth i suppose that has happened since then how many are you now are you still about 14 15 or it's grown so much it's uh well but then you know we had a couple of people going on sabbatical right so it's about 16. Mm -hmm. do um, you talk about that like how you're going to grow or if there is growth or not wanting to grow perhaps to make sure that you retain some of the good stuff that you've done no, we definitely talk about growth. I think we all agree that we need some fresh energy, you know. Mm. Uh, so we talk about how that would work in a fair way, mm. you know, how new people would feel joining such a weird cult. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, we do. We do talk about growth, right? And we are slowly growing. Yeah. We started to employ yeah. full-time people, which is amazing for us. Yeah. And what? Um, so what are the next projects down the down the pipe? There's a few. Um, we just got planning for a project that we originally started in 2013 mm -hmm. which is um, great news I mean it's been crazy how long it took to get planning but it's a series of affordable studios and live work units uh -huh. uh, in Hammersmith West London uh, in Julian Trevelyan's old home yeah it's a lovely project yeah. hopefully uh, we'll be when it's done mm -hmm. we are also doing more stuff in Granby workshop and we're building um, new affordable housing and commercial space uh -huh. again in, in Granby yeah we are continuing our relationship with Matur Institute. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure exactly where it's going to go after this period, but some sort of connection. Have you had a major exhibition of your work? We had one in Vienna. Yeah. Um, in the architecture centre there. Mm -hmm. That was our first solo yeah. exhibition. Great. Is there anything else that you want to talk about that maybe I haven't asked you about, or maybe about some of the other members of the group that you want to talk about? So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about how you work together amongst yourselves, because um, it is about 16 of us, you said, you're employing people now, um, and there's always been the, the sense, at least from the outside, that the, there's no sense of hierarchy. Um, and uh, and even communicating with you is is kind of like a fun experience of communicating with a group, yeah. um, which feels very refreshing actually. Um, so how how do you how do you do that? Because it's um, you do need some sort of structure, right? And sometimes when there's an apparent informality, there's actually a very solid structure behind it to make it work. Absolutely, yeah. It's one of our long ongoing design projects is how we organize ourselves, mm. and it's been changing, you know, really all the time. I mean, we're all partners, so we are all equal in that sense. Mm. But we obviously have a lot of management tasks that need to be done. And mm. we used to you know, have 
uh, weekly meetings when we're all there yeah. and that just took so long and yeah. <laughs> so much of our time mm. well before that there was probably hardly any structure it was just chaos <laughs> so then that was the first step and mm. then we organized into a rotating management group uh-huh. so that you'd have four people on this group um, and they would change every nine months mm. with like an overlap Right. Those people would discuss upcoming issues or general management and finance stuff, and then we would right. have a quarterly review with everyone mm-hmm. and a kind of annual summit mm. where we all meet. And we also have the kind of bureaucracy of documenting meetings and all the latest updates. And weekly we meet to uh, review projects. Right. So every week there'll be, say, a couple of projects that are presented, and then we have working groups where we design certain things together. Mm. So that is really important for us to keep that collective brain yeah. working. Yeah, yeah. And now we've moved to another system where we share the management tasks equally. So everyone is involved, but you are on different teams. Mm-hmm. You know, there's projects, communications, right. finance, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and I'm sure it will change again. But it is really important those that those things work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> kind of essential, right? Um, yeah. I'm curious on your take as well on what's going on in London these days. I think it's really hard to see how the Brexit decision will affect mm. London or England probably differently yeah. in London than the rest of the sure, country. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's just uh, chaos. Like people yeah. don't really know what's going to happen. Yeah. So we're just plowing through, you know, just carrying on what we're doing. Yeah, of course. I mean, what can you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it's all kind of um, fragile. Yeah, mm. yeah. London as a city too, like, has taken on this kind of like such a financial profile mm-hmm. in so many ways that um, at, at least I, I felt it when we were living there too and it became so incredibly unaffordable yeah. that, that now I feel this like vast difference with a place like Houston or where, where life can just be different mm. so do you ever think about that and like do you feel the city sometimes sort of like pushing you out in that sense definitely mm. yeah we've talked about maybe moving out of London mm-hmm. I think that will be difficult as a whole group to yeah. do that yeah yeah but yeah it's definitely quite a difficult place to live mm. or have a nice lifestyle right to me it's interesting to see this kind of like shift of um, going to I don't want to call them b-type cities but the a-type cities the London's and New York's and Paris's mm. and and there's sort of like an embrace of uh, going to other places mm. um, where uh, where things can actually be done uh, that seems to have a lot of sense of, of possibility and sometimes some of the projects that you do do that right even though you're based in London you kind of like jump to other areas yeah. uh, where you feel you can uh, contribute that way yeah definitely somewhere like Liverpool and New Orleans are those places right. I mean New Orleans would be a great place to move mm. I think it's already kind of on the radar right. for a lot of people in the States how, how has <laughs> your experience there been in terms of spending long periods of time there coming and going I really love it. I, I mean, it's a complicated place, yeah. but it it definitely has its special energy. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I could walk and bicycle there. Right. And I don't know, it feels like a lot more people are moving there yeah. recently because yeah. it is more affordable. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. Um, but thank you so much. It was lovely to have you here. Thank you for having me. For more information on our fall lecture series, visit the Rice Architecture website. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review. And don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platform to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and this has been Tete a Tete.